Welcome to the Indie Matters Podcast, where we talk about the issues that matter most to Nevada. I'm John Ralston, the editor of the Nevada Independent. Today, I'll be chatting with one of Nevada's most astute political observers, Billy Vasiliadis. And as always, we'll close with some to and fro on some issues of the day between myself and the Indies managing editor, Elizabeth Thompson. Some great stories to talk about this week. We'll chat about a Republican leader in Nevada calling Democrats lesser humans. We'll talk about how the Trump tax bill could help you. Campaign donations being revealed this week. And a horrifying story by Megan Messerly about the mentally ill and conditions in group homes. They're essentially uninhabitable. That's me and Elizabeth Thompson later on. But first, let's get started with my recap of some of the week's headlines from the Nevada Independent. The big campaign news this week was Republican Stavros Anthony's announcement that he would get out of the congressional race to try to take Ruben Kiewin's place. Michelle Rendell's reported that Anthony had raised a bunch of money but said that health concerns, an elevated heart rate to be exact, sidelined him. Maybe, but I also think that he got an elevated heart rate when he read ex-Congressman Cresson Hardy wanted to run in that primary. Megan Messerly and Jackie Valley reported on the campaign contribution reports, which were due Tuesday. They found the most interesting stuff in the governor's race, where Republican Adam Laxalt has $3 million on hand and Democrat Steve Sisolak has twice that much. Sisolak, though, still has a tough primary with Clark County Commission colleague Chris June Kiliani, and Laxalt must swat away that always buzzing fly named Dan Schwartz, the state treasurer. In the end, those totals, though, won't mean that much for two reasons. First, a low turnout primary means almost anything could happen. Almost. And second, outside groups will almost surely spend more than all the candidates raised combined. Riley Snyder had a scoop that Nevada Democrats must have hated. He reported that NV Energy may have to lower rates even more to pass on savings from that Republican tax bill. Imagine the ads Senator Dean Heller and Laxalt are preparing, not to mention Republican candidates for Congress. The White House even sent out a release linking to Riley's story. The Indy has truly arrived. Megan, though, had the most horrifying story of the week on a legislative audit that found revolting conditions for group homes. These were found two years ago when the Reno Gazette Journal first exposed them. Now, I'm not one for calling for heads or jobs to be lost, and I think it's an exaggeration to say this is a blight on Governor Brian Sandoval's mostly unblemished record, but two years and nothing done? It's obscene. Finally, this week, another story that the Indy does better than anyone because of our reporters' diligence and search for context. Michelle Rendell's reported on a little-known audit committee where it was revealed that correctional officers are essentially gaming the system through overtime and may bust the state budget. It was just the kind of important and deep reporting you've come to expect from this team. It is definitely worth a read at the NevadaIndependent.com. We'll be back in a moment with Billy Vasiliadis. We're back on Indie Matters, the Nevada Independence podcast, with our guest, Billy Vasiliadis. He helms R&R Partners, one of the state's most successful public relations and advertising firms. He's also widely recognized as one of the country's smartest political analysts. Full disclosure, though, R&R designed the Indies website, and Billy is one of my oldest and closest friends. He's actually quite old. Billy Vasiliadis, welcome to Indie Matters. 
we did have a successful ad agency until that intro. <laughs> I'm so sorry about that. Uh, let's let's uh, talk uh, about a bunch of stuff today, if we can, about the upcoming election. And uh, in case people don't know, you're, you're also uh, uh, you've also handled the convention authority account for a long time. And I want to ask some questions about marketing Las Vegas uh, at the end. Let, let's talk about the political atmospherics first. Uh, though there's so many signs out there, and people are talking about this of a democratic wave uh, coming. You've seen results in some other places. You've seen what's going on uh, with Donald Trump's approval rating. Is it too early to say there's going to be a democratic wave, or is it just a matter of what degrees the democratic wave is going to be? Well, listen, I think it's way too early. Uh, you know, uh, conventionally, ten years ago, we'd say a year is a long time, ten months a long time, a month is a long time in this political environment. Uh, it's so it's so toxic. It's so flammable. I mean, we, we're on the verge of possibly a government shutdown. Who wears that? The Democrats wear it for voting no. Do the Republicans wear it? Uh, Isn't it usually the power, party in power uh, that, that wears that? And by the way, we should tell our audience that we are recording this on uh, Thursday. The government could have shut down by the yeah. time they hear this. Um, it usually is the party in power, but if there's a unanimous vote of Democrats to not fund government. Who knows? And again, usually and conventionally no longer apply. Uh, you've got Mr. Trump in the White House, which I think is probably eliminate any sense of convention or traditional thinking or tried and true or any of those things. So, yeah, it is it's way too early to tell because single events seem to change the flow of, of, of political discourse and of, and, and of what we would think are eventualities much more dramatically than ever before. There's such a fracture in the electorate, and what what can get a, a group of, say, 15% of the voters to respond to something, uh, positive or negatively, could make a big difference in an election. So I wouldn't take heart or any sense that there's a blue wave uh, right now. I mean, yeah, it, the Virginia, New Jersey, and, I mean, by the way, I don't consider Alabama as being indicative of anything other than a, you know, other than a sexual predator not winning an election. But, you know, the others did have some... You know, showed some potential trends. Again, a year away. You mentioned some of the factors. Uh, uh, Trump in the White House, the fracturing of the electorate. Uh, uh, this seems to me, after you know more than 30 years of, of, of watching this, the most unpredictable atmosphere in some ways. For, for those reasons and just with how things have changed, the velocity of information. You mentioned a month being a, la a long time. You, you and I could be done recording this podcast and something could have happened that would have been reported on Twitter or Facebook or online that could change uh, the, the dy dynamic. Uh, is this the... The, the hardest uh, uh, political atmosphere to predict since you've started watching this? No question, but I think it's it, it, it's not unique to politics. This is predicting societal trends, predicting culture, predicting fashions, predicting movies, predicting whatever it might be, what attracts 3 million YouTube viewers um, is impossible. And and Why is that? Well, one, because I think, there again, there's such a fracture both not just in the electorate but also in the public. People tend to now go to where what they already believe is validated and then they get information to continue to argue what they already thought was true, whether it's true or not. So that's number one. Number two, we've learned both as marketers and the political worlds learn the power of customization, of speaking directly to a single voter in their interests and what they care about. So taking how a small, one voter, a group of voters, a precinct will react to something and trying to project that 
is a fool's errand. There are factors uh, that are going to affect all of these Nevada races. Let, let's talk. Let's go through some of them. I, I don't remember uh, uh, any time that I've covered politics here when you had uh, the top two races for governor and for U.S. Senate, both being not only unpredictable but of national significance. There's going to be a lot of national watching and money pouring in. Let, let's talk about uh, uh, what it's going to take for each of these candidates to be, to be successful. Uh, and let's take a look at the uh, uh, Democratic side of the governor's race first, where you have two county commissioners, Steve Sisolak and Chris June Kiliani, uh, 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 going at it. Uh, for those who are listening who don't know, the primary is in June. Uh, turnout generally is, it, 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 it's going to be high if it's 30%, which is what it was back in 2010 when Harry Reid had all those primary opponents. It's generally around 20%, very low. Uh, conventional wisdom is that Chris June Kiliani, uh, who's running as an unabashed liberal, is going to appeal more to the base. Steve Sisolak is more of a moderate. So let's let's talk about Sisolak first. He's he's got uh, uh, twice as much money uh, as Adam Laxalt, but he's got probably six times as much money or more than Chris uh, June Kiliani. But he's not he's not uh, uh, simpatico with everybody in the base based on everything that he's done. What does he need to, need to do to be successful in the primary? Listen, I think one of the biggest tasks for him is just become known. I mean, he needs to become a much more aggressive and visible campaigner. Um, you know, interesting thing about Nevada, again, I, you said conventional, and, and I'm about, and I said there's no such thing. I'm about to violate what I said. Nevada's an interesting state in that our governors, with one exception probably being Governor Gibbons, the rest of our governors, whether it's Sandoval, Gwynn, Miller, Bryan, uh, had as much of a challenge with their own base as they did with the other party. Nevada tends to elect practical governors, sort of moderate, middle-of-the-road governors. Whether they're Republicans or Whether Democrats. Whether Republicans or Democrats. Um, now, having said that, we have a Democrat party that's increasingly seems to be splitting. You saw some of that even in the legislature in sort of the, the progressive movement as it's been labeled, versus organized labor, two staples of the Democrat Party for years and years and years, and yet they were split on a number of issues. There's, they're going to be split on some issues now. Uh, energy choice, for example, you've got the labor folks pretty upset about it, and you have the progressive folks pushing it pretty strongly. What, how that split plays inside the party, how that plays in the primary, who's going to have more votes, hard to tell. I think money is significant. Uh, it still is significant, I think. Money is still significant in politics. He could buy name recognition much quicker. Uh, you know, if Chris is going to need to ratchet up her fundraising just to get her message out. I mean, the other challenge for all these candidates in this state is it isn't the small state it used to be where, you know, God bless Dick Bryant, he probably met every voter in the course of an election. And so media, whether it's television, whether it's streaming video, whether it's digital buys, whatever it is, social media, is is critical and vital. And, and to some extent, you can buy your way into office. You know, it's interesting. You were involved in a governor's race with Bob Miller. You mentioned Bob Miller, who ran against Jan Jones. And Jan Jones essentially tried to do... Uh, to, to Bob Miller, what Chris June Kiliani will do to Steve Sislak. He's not a real Democrat. He's too moderate. Yeah, the other analogy that's been used is Dina Titus uh, versus Jim Gibson, and and, and she was, uh, uh, and, and she won that primary. Jan Jones did not win that primary. How do you win uh, if you're if 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 you're uh, running as a middle of the road guy, saying you're not a liberal in a Democratic primary? It seems like a difficult thing to do. No. Well, I'd say a couple of things. You know, there's an interesting irony here in that. Uh, Chris is 
dear departed husband Gary Gray was Bob Miller's campaign manager, right. and he did devise a way for that to happen. <laughs> um, and and Gary basically directed Miller into a very practical approach. Again, he talked to labor people about labor issues, um, talked to about pocketbook issues, talked about safety issues. If you look at the things that are polling strongly in Nevada, safety's pretty high on the list. I, I think probably influenced by, by one October. Healthcare, high on the list. Um, energy, high on the list. And I think, you know, there is, I don't know what the percentage of progressive voters is. Uh, it just like I'm not sure exactly what the percentage of, of uh, ultra-conservative voters is on the Republican side. Let's put it on 20, 25%. And so in a lower turnout, they do represent a larger number. But it's still only, it's not 50%. It's not 60%. And so I think Sisolak's path is to take a very sort of practical, real approach, real problem-solving, school overcrowding, school funding, public safety, uh, how he, what he would do different for to preserve health care in, in the state with all of the assaults on, on, uh, on the uh, uh, Affordable Care Act, et cetera, Medicaid. How is, how is he going to protect that? So I think, you know, there is still a way to get there. And like I said, it was it was devised in 94 and successfully so. Having said that, this isn't 94. And the growing frustration with the administration, uh, the millennial groups, the Bernie folks uh, that were, you know, turned out so strongly just a couple of years ago here in Nevada, um, says it's going to be a challenge. And there's no race here that's a laydown. Uh you know, the, the, the word authenticity is used a lot now. Uh, you know, may, maybe Bernie Sanders was considered by the Democratic base as more authentic uh, than Hillary Clinton. I, I, is that what Christian Kiliani needs to do in this race to say, I'm the authentic liberal in the same way, or not even necessarily same way, in a similar way that Bernie Sanders did, and the person that I'm running against is not really authentic? Yeah, now let, let's, let's, I mean, to be honest about it, I think Senator Sanders had a little bit easier time painting. Secretary Clinton is being inauthentic, given her, inauthentic, given her history. Um, I would say the, the Commissioner Giuliani has to be a little cautious in going just to that message. I think it does appeal to a significant amount of, of Democrat vote in a primary, in a lower primary. But that message alone, I don't think, wins the election. Now, you're talking about a veteran uh, campaigner, and, 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 and she knows how to, how to campaign. She knows how to talk, she transforms herself into a campaign, you know, well, and has in the past. I don't think, and at the end of the day, both Sislak and June Kiliani want to be governor, just not the nominee. So the yellow flag up there for both of them will be, you can't get to a point where, you know, Adam Laxall's got 70, 60% of the, of the vote going in based on what you said in the primary. And so caution flags all over on how hard Anybody goes to find any sort of position on the spectrum. Probably don't have to be as moderate as they were 15, 16 years ago, but I also don't think they can run to an extreme and then get back to center and win a general election. You mentioned that most of the latest last half dozen governors, with the exception of Jim Gibbons, have been middle of the road, mm -hmm. uh, whether Republicans or Democrats. Uh, certainly Adam Laxalt is not running as, as a middle of the road guy. He's running as very, con very, very conservative. Mm -hmm. uh, what does he need to do? I mean, this is not a very, very conservative state by, mm -hmm. by demographics or by registration. How do you win a general election that way? If you're uh, Attorney General Laxalt? Yeah. I think the Attorney General's got a couple of issues. I mean, I, you know, obviously he's, he's really used used. He's been out there on veterans affairs and veterans issues. I think 
he puts to, if he could patch together a list of issues like that that affect significant parts of the population or at least where significant parts of population are sympathetic to. I mean, we all want to help our vets. We don't want to see our vets homeless. We don't want to see our vets addicted. We don't want to see our vets on opioids and the things that are that are going on. And I think, again, Nevada is a practical state. I think if, if the attorney general takes a practical approach and has some solutions to some of the things that are plaguing the state or, 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 or bothering the state. And so um, I hate to be redundant, but I think the blueprint for all three is kind of the same, a little more complicated in a Democrat primary than it is for the attorney general. I mean, I don't think he's got much to be concerned about with, with the treasurer. Um, you don't? I, no, I don't. I mean, again, I think if the attorney general w- didn't have the conservative platform that he has, then maybe, right? I mean, Sharon Engel was nominated by the Republican Party for the U.S. Senate. So things happen. But I don't think, the, I don't think that, that, that Adam Laxalt has ceded that much territory that Dan Schwartz can go get. And so, uh, yeah, I don't think that one's going to be a challenge. So, uh, how much are national atmospherics? Uh, how, how well, they're going to they're going to matter because I mean, because I do think the one thing that the attorney attorney general and and just everybody every Republican, Dean Heller and, and and others have to be cautious of, is who knows what the Trump effect will be uh, in in November. It's still good in a primary. I mean, it's being close to, to, to Donald Trump helps in a primary. I don't know what it's going to be in November. You know, there's though there are those that are saying the the uh, the benefits of the tax will begin to be seen in the economic growth and what have you, and maybe, I mean, maybe. But ultimately, the divisiveness of, of, of this president, both ethnically, uh, the types of, of, of anger that he evokes in the electorate, is something that the attorney general and all, Dean, Senator Heller and all Republicans, have to be cautious of and figure out where to begin some gradual separation. Without it being so obvious. Without it being obvious. Yeah, they can't turn on him, right. um, especially the AG, because he was pretty close to him, but, or stayed very loyal to President Trump. But I do think that he's going to need to find that space. You know, frankly, uh, for, for him and for the Republicans, it's got to be sort of a Nevada first attitude. Democrats had to run under unpopular Democrats and or Democrat nominees and just kind of did the Nevada first thing. And that's probably where the Republicans are going to have to go. So that's a good segue into the Senate race. You mentioned Heller. Uh, uh, Danny Tarkanian, hoping the sixth time is the charm, I it guess. It won't be. It won't be? No. No chance? Not a chance. Really? No. Why? I just think Heller, I think the tax vote helped Heller a lot. I think there's something about, again, in a, in a lower turnout primary on the Republican side, you're going to have Conservative, yes, but also fairly informed voters that pay attention more than the average voter, maybe. Something about voting for someone that lost six times that gets a little hard. And so, I, you know, this I don't. five times. This would be the Okay, sixth. this would be this five yes, times. Let's be fair to Danny. Sorry, Danny. Um, I don't think Senator Heller's lost a race. That's right. Um, and there's a reason for that. It's not all luck. And so my, uh, yeah, I think I, I would say Heller is a safe bet to be the general. Safe bet? Yep. You know, I've already published a piece where I said Tarkanian is probably going to win, and you're still saying that on our podcast? I, 
I don't think we have time on this podcast for all the predictions you've made over the years that have been wrong, and this one could be the wrongest. You think so? Wow, I do. wrongest. Yes, wow, most that wrong. is harsh. So let, let's talk, let's talk about let, let's talk about then. Let's assume that you're right, which I, I want to tell our listeners is a huge leap of faith here on my part. But let's assume you're right, and Heller wins that primary. Uh, uh, he has he ha- he and Tarkanian are engaged in this "I love Trump more than you" game right now, which we assume is going to go on for a while. Uh, you and I don't know. I think I agree with you. I think it's too early to predict what the atmospherics are going to be like this far out. But we have to assume that's not going to be a great thing for Dean Heller going into the general election. Um, does the general election become Heller somehow trying to make it seem like he is more middle of the road on certain things, maybe Nevada first issues, and that he just has to nuke Jackie Rosen to win? Because that's how he won in 2012, essentially, right. uh, with Shelley Berkeley, who was under an ethics investigation, yeah. and he still barely won that race. Looking at the atmospherics, even if they're not as bad as they are now for him, it's still got to be an uphill climb for him. It's gonna be, it's a, it could be a tough race. I mean, and, and Shelley was much more nukable than, than I think Congresswoman Rosen is. Um, She's barely been in politics. Yeah. Heller does have a, a, a bona fide on the, on the Trump distancing, which is his health care vote. Um, He's and, had three like, health care votes, like two were with Trump and one was against or but something. The, but the big one, the one that was the most publicized, the one that, that, that upset Trump and the administration and, and, and a lot of conservative Republicans were, was where he stood with Governor Sandoval on protecting Medicaid. Uh, translate, protecting health care for... The state in a political ad, a political spot. So hundreds of thousands in the so mountains. So Trump will be able. I mean, Trump, Heller will be able to say, "I stood with the president when he was right, and I wasn't, and I stood with Nevada when I thought he was wrong." And he's got the example examples to show that he. I think those federal races probably have the will be most influenced by the national atmosphere. Will be most influenced by Trump's numbers. Will be most influenced by the. Does the Pelosi-Schumer attack still work the way it did in 2014? Can they paint all Democrats with the same brush? Um, That's going to be the campaign again. Uh, I don't know that we're going to have much more substance than that. Sadly, let's, yeah. Uh, let's talk about the, the since you mentioned the federal races. There's two. It's very it's very unusual. You have two open congressional seats now. Uh, Jackie Rosen running for the Senate, and you have Reuben Keewen who's announced he's not running again because of sexual harassment uh, allegations. Because of what you just said. Uh, 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 Rosen's district is very close in registration. The Democrats have a sizable edge in 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 Keewin's district, although it did go to a Republican when Hardy upset Stephen Horsford. Is it safe to assume that both of those races then lean Democratic? Do you think? No, I don't think it's safe to assume that. I w- I think it's safe to assume that Keewin's district will lean Democrat. I think the numbers, et cetera, and I think 2014 was an aberration. Um, and I think 2018, for those voters in 14 that stayed home, I think they will be, because com- they were Democrats, um, they'll be compelled to go vote in a protest Trump probably message. In, 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 in Congresswoman Rosen's current seat, I- I'm not as clear on that. I mean, again, I'm going to go back to we've been debating whether to be conventional or not conventional. It's a it's a not it's not a presidential year. If you look at the history of that seat, when Democrats won it and when Democrats lost it, back to to Dina Titus, uh, it's been won in in presidential years and lost in off years. And so, I, you know, I'd say it's a 
dead even at best. Uh, you know, it's interesting. You, you and I had the pleasure, and I'm putting that in quotes, of, of being around for when that district was actually drawn up in the legislature. It was essentially drawn for, at the time, a state senator by the name of John Porter. Right. Uh, and, and they actually went into a special session because of that to make it more favorable for a Republican. That district has always seemed to lean Republican the way it was drawn, Good. where the growth areas uh, are. That has to be worrisome to the Democrats, even in, in a year like this, uh, where it seems like there might be a wave or some semblance of a wave, right? I mean, that was drawn for a Republican. It, well, the, the short answer is yes, but it was drawn to some extent with a future perspective. You said that right. in your uh, in your discussion, which was it was drawn to account for growth, the growth in that area considered to be more white-collar, middle, upper to upper income, so therefore by default they would be more Republican, and so the district would become stronger as time went on. I think between the recession and all sorts of other things, that Scrambled probably it. didn't play out yeah. exactly the way that it was projected. And so it is more of a toss-up. Again, we're going to find out this year if off-year elections still mean anything or don't mean anything. Because what also offsets the off-year election is usually it, it it's not to the favor of the president in power. You look at even going back to Clinton, Obama, Bush. You know, the off years have been not good for, for House members and, and senators or in the party of the presidents. Uh, before we, we uh, wrap up by talking about uh, the LVCVA, the Convention Authority, and, and, and some stuff that's going on there, I want to talk about the legislature. But I don't want to put you in a bad position. People should know you're a legislative lobbyist. You have to lobby both both uh, parties. Uh, the Assembly almost certainly is going to remain in Democratic hands. The State Senate, you and I, I think in all the years we've been uh, observing this together, have never seen anything like what's going on now with these recalls, proposed recalls. Yep. They're caught up in court. Even uh, 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 the, the State Senate essentially is, is now 12 to 9 with Patty Farley being an independent caucus. Yep. Uh, what, what is your take on the impact of these recalls? I'm more interested in not whether they're going to be successful. You and I, yep. as good as we are, can't predict what's going to happen in the court. But what is there? Is there a long-term impact on the political process for the Republicans? Essentially, ginning up recalls because they can't uh, uh, take the Senate. They can't. Or I should tell people they can't take the Senate uh, because there's no de vulnerable Democrats up in 2018. Is there a long-term impact on the political process? Do you think? You know, I guess sadly no, uh, because. Of all the crazy things that have happened in our political process the last decade, why would this stand out? Um, you don't think it's especially egregious? Personally, I, 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 I think it's ridiculous. I mean, you know, from, from the, the, the very same folks that think the recall is a good idea keep talking about elections have consequences. Well, the elections had a consequence two years ago. Um, there's an election this year. I personally abhor recalls. Um, you know, if someone deserves to be taken out of office, it should be taken out either through impeachment or the legal process um, instead of a, a minority of folks causing another election that could potentially overcome the majority that put that person in office. Uh, and so I think there needs to be cause. I don't think it should be as casual as it is. And I'm, by the way, I'm not even aiming this at the Republicans now. I've been, I was on the other side of recalls in county commission and city council races, et cetera, et cetera, years ago. Against just, Democrats. Against Democrats. Yep. I just think it's a, it's a, uh, uh, it's a terrible part of the process, and, 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 and it should be reviewed and reversed. But having said that, is it going to have long-term impact against the Republicans? No, of course not. I mean, none of the, again, none of this stuff is having long-term impacts any, anymore, John. What is a long-term impact? A month? I mean, and the recalls, to some extent, are sort of inside baseball. The, you know, the... Uh, the more 
astute and keen voters in those two districts know what's going on and probably have formed an opinion, but in the rest of the state, it's not affecting them. All right, let's let's switch gears and and talk for a few minutes about uh, um, uh, the aftermath of one October, uh, the most horrible incident in this in this city and state's uh, history. Uh, you 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 you've been doing uh, marketing for Las Vegas for for decades. Uh, there there seems to be a real challenge now for you uh, in the wake of this incident, uh, in 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 the sense that people now have to think about something they never had to think about before. Is Las Vegas a safe place to come? Uh, you've come up with all these uh, very memorable uh, marketing campaigns uh, in the past, the American way to play and, and what happens here stays here, uh, of, of course. Have you had to completely readjust your thinking in the wake of this tragedy? We had to readjust in the immediate aftermath of the tragedy, obviously. Um, I think it was, no, I think it was about respecting the victims, their families, the grieving process that had to take place, both with those families, us as a city, and, and the country, and, and frankly, the world. I mean, the kind of communicating and messaging that we received worldwide was, was, was touching, it was heartwarming, it was very emotional. Uh, the good wishes and the support that were literally worldwide. Um, you know, interestingly enough, or I guess sadly enough, as, as Americans today, it's become a little too accepted in this cultural shift. And so while there is still a seared memory of 1 October, what we're seeing in our surveys is many of our visitors are, want quote, unquote, my Vegas back. Um, just as recently as a couple of weeks ago, uh, in groups that we did in, in New York and Chicago, a couple other cities, they were saying, be mindful. I mean, don't pretend it didn't happen. Don't just ignore that it happened. But it's okay to start telling us why it's cool and fun to be in Vegas again. I mean, don't forget, again, tragically, sadly, we've had an incident in New York since then. Um, and so, to a large extent, we've become a little inured to this mass violence, and that's sad. Um, but again, even today... We're conscious to not be respectful and mindful of the victims and their families and what the country felt on 1 October. And so we're not leaving that behind, but we are beginning to market the good reasons to come to Vegas again. We talked, we talked to, to, to wrap this up, there's been a constant theme here about the fracturing of the electorate and the public, the way things are perceived now, uh, stuff that goes out on the Internet. I'm wondering how much of a factor it is that we still don't know uh, apparently, law enforcement does not know why Stephen Paddock did uh, what he did, which, of course, has spawned all kinds of conspiracy theories, which are believed, I think, by more significant numbers of people than you and I want, 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 want to think. With, with, with his motives still unknown, uh, uh, except by these, by these Internet memes and, and, and the rest of it, does that affect what you do? Is, there, is that uncertainty about why this guy would have done this out there? No. I, you know, if anything, I think... Other than the conspiracy theorists and the blackout, who I'm not sure were Vegas visitors anyway, right. um, thankfully. But I think that the, generally what we've heard back is it was clearly one crazy person. You know, there, it, it's not a 
safety issue with Las Vegas. It's not in a series of, God forbid, terror attacks or what happened in Florida 20-some-odd years ago where German tourists were being killed on, on highways. There isn't a pattern of violence in Las Vegas that, that would concern people. <clears throat> I think that people want to be assured that we there was a, you know we got a sense that that we need to do better i mean there needed to be maybe security needed to be rethought and and really not cuz of vegas just because of large events now i mean if you look at all the large events that are being held in the world the security that that leads up to those events is tighter more thoughtful more scrutinized than ever before but having said that i think in a, in again in a, in a strange and i hate to say this cuz very uncomfortable but if there's a positive, I guess, to not knowing Paddock's motive is most people have dismissed him to just being a lunatic who snapped and sadly killed all those people. All right, Billy Vassiliadis, we're out of time. Thanks so much for coming on the podcast. Thanks, John. It was very enjoyable. Good. Welcome back to Indie Matters, the podcast of the Nevada Independent. We're now at the, what I like to think is my favorite part of every week when Elizabeth Thompson, my good friend and number two here at the Independent, and I talk about some of the stories that caught our eye on the Nevada Independent site. Hi, Elizabeth. Hello. So let's start uh, with uh, something that, that I came across uh, and posted on, on uh, my blog on the site, which was Michael Roberson. Uh, and I said this is a, f- a phenomenon that occurs every other year when these uh, uh, either Republicans or Democrats go to these highly partisan gatherings, Lincoln Day dinner in this case, and say things they shouldn't say because they're, they, want, they, they, they want to appeal to the faithful and throw them red meat. But Roberson, who is the Senate minority leader running uh, for lieutenant governor, uh, has described how he once worked with Democrats but then essentially decided they're, quote, lesser humans. And so you've seen this explosion on social media since then, and the Democrats even had a press conference uh, about this, which, by the way, the Nevada Independent that declined to cover uh, since we have better things to do, which seemed like an overreaction and, and, and a violation of the, of, of, of the credo of when your opponent is committing suicide, get out of the way. Uh, is this just Roberson trying to be funny? Is it Tim just getting caught up in the moment? Does it have any long-term significance? What do you think? Well, from what I understand of the context, he was kidding, and he did say a few words after that to kind of let people know he was kidding. I wasn't in the room, but I would imagine there was laughter, and this is the kind of red meat that gets thrown out. Uh, year in and year out, not just on the Republican side. The Democrats do it as well. I've been in, you know, plenty of rooms where there were, you know, plenty of awful things were said by the Democrats about Republicans. They let Republicans you in those rooms at, at one time? Uh, at one time, they one did. Time. Not, okay. not anymore. <laughs> so it happens. And this is what's interesting to me. So on the one hand, we have Republicans and Democrats who who are thoughtful civic servants who always complain about this kind of rhetoric and say, you know, this just it cheapens the process and gets people all whipped up and we shouldn't be dehumanizing people and so on and so forth. And I happen to agree with all that. On the other hand, in an election year, Republicans and Democrats alike throw the kitchen sink and everything they can think of at the opposing party, including besmirching their character and questioning their honesty and integrity. And are, Calling they, stu- them racist. are they stupid or evil? We just right. can't decide to whip up the base, get people excited and get their folks out to the polls. So it, it, it's 
it always happens. It's always a little dismaying. But at the same time, I think Americans have become inoculated it, against it to some degree. We've just become used to it. This is just part of the process. Yeah, I think I think uh, Roberson probably thought he was joking or was trying to make a joke, and then he did try to mitigate it right afterwards. Because if you listen to the intonation on 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 the audio, you hear you hear that. I think where he went, uh, where he should have stopped, and he can't stop himself. Is then he later uh, to, after after we put this out on the Nevada Independence Twitter feed, he then responded to that by saying exhibit A and put out a picture and unflat picture of Tick Sagerblum, a Democratic state senator running for the county commission, and former Democratic state senator uh, uh, Justin Jones, who's also running for the county commission. Says, Here's proof they are lesser humans. I mean, I didn't understand either of those. I looked at those photos on Twitter and I thought, well, first of all, as someone who's in the public eye, I've had all kinds of horrible photos of me taken. I mean, if someone catches you in the wrong moment when there's a weird look on your face, you're going to lo- look a little odd. The Justin Jones photo, I didn't understand it at all. Because he had a cowboy hat on, I thought. Big it deal. Yeah, that, Why, I, is I that a smear to wear a cowboy hat? I, I just thought Roberson libertarian should, rural Nevada. If you were, if you, yeah, if you were, if you were, uh, if, if you were, if you were just joking, then just shut up. But Roberson, uh, Roberson, uh, just cannot. He did. He did take it farther, and you're right. And I actually, that's the one of the reasons that I sort of agreed with you that we should talk about this today. It's not so much what he said at that uh, dinner, which was, you know, maybe a joke in bad taste, but we can all kind of understand it. But to tweet out those two photos after the fact of two perfectly decent human right. beings, I know both of them. Right. You know, they're fine humans. They believe what they believe. It doesn't happen to always be what Roberson believes. But Roberson has worked with both of them in the past on a variety of issues in Carson City. He knows as well as anybody that when they get together in a room to pass certain bills, everybody gets along just fine. So it is red meat. It's not serious. But again, it's an election year. And and Roberson and, and others like him, including President Trump, just seem willing to say and do just about Anything. There's no fear. There's no shame. Uh, speaking of President Trump, uh, we we had a story uh, this week. Uh, from Riley Snyder, who once again uh, scooped everyone on an energy story. Uh, and this one, I mean, uh, I, I'm sure the Roberson story drove Republicans crazy. This one must have driven Democrats just absolutely insane uh, that that uh, Envy Energy is going to reap a, a, a windfall, tens of millions of dollars from this tax bill that the president and, and you heard Billy Vassiliadis talk about how Dean Heller may have gotten some uh, a, a positive uh, a momentum uh, from it, that this is going to actually probably force Envy Energy to lower rates more. The tax bill, Donald Trump, Dean Heller, hope lower uh, electric rates. That That's just, that is going to be, uh, you're going to see that in ads for sure. Well, for sure, because everyone just about pays an electric bill, so it affects everyone uh, broadly. I do want to say, just to point out from a policy perspective that, okay, yes, the tax cut helped, but it's policies that have long been in place over public utilities that that force them to charge less when they're making a certain amount of profit because they're a public entity that also contributed to this. And those are uh, democratic policies, actually, that, that that tend to lead to that. But in this particular case, yes, Trump and the Republicans do get to take credit for the fact that they got this, this tax cut through. Electric bills are going to go down. And, you know, companies like Walmart announcing that they're jumping to $11 an hour. Other companies saying, OK, we're going to do more for our employees in terms of benefits. We're going to raise our uh, our minimum wage standards for employees. This is all very good for the Republicans in an election year. I'm sure they're pretty happy with themselves, and they probably should be, because as Billy said in the uh, earlier segment, this will play well for the Republicans broadly. 
I, I think it's definitely you're going to see it in more than one ad uh, this this year in Nevada. And speak, speaking of the of, of the campaigns, uh, our team uh, did and is still working on uh, uh, sifting through all the campaign uh, reports. And I mentioned some of what we found uh, to, 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 to Billy earlier. Uh, and, and what jumped out at you? Oh, I don't know if anything in particular uh, jumped out. I didn't see anything, frankly, that surprised me all that much. Uh, I guess the one thing I can say is how much money Wes Duncan, running for attorney running general, running for attorney general, uh, raised. That's a lot of money for an AG. More than half a million dollars race. Um, so early, you know, I, I would I wouldn't have been surprised to see that in Q two or Q three. But he definitely uh, got out there quickly. Um, and raise a decent amount of uh, money. That's got to be encouraging to him uh, and his staff. I always find it interesting, um, and we work hard at the Nevada Independent to try to break this down for the readers, um, when you see the type of bundling that kind of goes on. Because, for example, you might have a parent casino company that owns 11, 12 different properties. Each and every one of them give five grand or 10 grand to a candidate. Well, that starts to add up, and we did see that in the in the governor's uh, race. And of course, we always see the hedging of the bets where there are contributions to both Democrats and uh, Republicans. So that's no surprise. And the hedging of the bets is just one of many features you're going to see soon in the Nevada Independent. We are going to uh, continue to sift through these campaign reports. I want to tell everybody that we actually have hired a, 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 an industrious intern who's going to help us do uh, the research uh, on this. And we're going to continue to do follow the money stories. And by the way, if any of you listeners have stories you think we should follow on the campaign reports, please uh, email us uh, at the Indy. I'll Absolutely. Give you the, and if the if listeners have questions too about, you know, how does this work or why should we care about this or even suggestions, feel free to uh, email us at editors at the com. We're happy to take cons- uh, advisement on such matters. We get a, we get great uh, uh, tips from our readers all the time that, that later turn into stories. Finally, uh, I have to tell you, I was affected by this story, and I, I think you were too, and I think Megan Messerly, who wrote it, probably was affected by it too. And she, you know, uh, attended what, you know, you would think is a, you know, a boring legislative meeting, and instead it turned into this uh, uh, exposure of these incredibly squalid conditions at group homes for, for the mentally ill, uh, uh, and, and these squalid conditions conditions. And squalid actually maybe is an understatement in terms of, you know, feces being all over the place, insects, all the rest of it, uninhabitable conditions, frankly. Uh, and and this had been exposed two years ago, as I mentioned earlier, by, by the Reno Gazette Journal's uh, Anjanette Damon, uh, and they still existed. And and what struck me, well, not so much as, as, as the, some of it was preening, I think, by, by the legislators and doing their shock, shocked uh, to hear this is go- going on. But that how broken this system really is that, that after Anjanette exposed this two years ago, that this has not been ameliorated at all, apparently. Yeah, I'm going to take it a step further and say that when it's, when it's two years later and you have the exact same problems, disgusting, horrible, unclean, unhealthy situations, no human being uh, should be relegated to living in these conditions, especially not people who are mentally ill and barely have any capacity to get through their day, never mind care for themselves. This is more than a system failure. This is a human resources and a people and a management failure. It is my belief that there are one or more individuals involved in this situation who have fallen down on the job. It is gross neglect and mismanagement of the public trust uh, and the public monies that have been put towards uh, taking care of these people 
I think some people probably need to lose their jobs uh, over this. And I hope that this story and our follow-ups, which we will do, and I'm sure Anjanette will do hers as well, will solve and fix this once and for all. This cannot be permitted to go on. Uh, well said. And, and I do want to say that, um, uh, as I said earlier, I don't usually call for people's heads either. But uh, obviously, someone needs to be, or maybe more than one person needs to be uh, held accountable. And I, and I will say this, uh, in, in, in uh, uh, the shameless self-promotion of our own Megan Messerly, no, nobody dives into these kinds of stories the way that Megan does, especially in healthcare. And by the time this podcast uh, is... is, is you are listening to this podcast. She already have posted a follow-up story that is going to that you will see as dynamite in terms of what she was able to find out. But this is far from the end of it. This is the kind of story that the independent is going to stay on. Yeah, one thing I'm not sure uh, listeners and readers always spend much time thinking about is how much time goes on uh, by a reporter just running down this information, the hours of interviews that are done and the research, the calling, the emailing, the following up, circling back around, doing a second interview, cross-checking information. We, we might post what's only a 1,500-word uh, story, but it takes sometimes days to get to the bottom of things, to get all this information on behalf of the public. So I just want to praise in general, not just our reporters, but all the reporters across the state uh, who work so hard to bring uh, these stories to the public. It's it's important work. Uh, and and uh, I think you're right to do that. And I want to say that it's part of uh, what we do here at, at, at the Indy that, uh, and I'll mention her name again, Anjanette Damon, at the Reno Gazette Journal. She probably didn't just spend days, she probably spent weeks and maybe months doing that story uh, a, a, a couple of years ago. Uh, true investigative public service journalism that you would think would have made a difference. And so I can't imagine how frustrated uh, uh, her readers must be in seeing uh, that this is still that way. But that, that is the kind of thing that, uh, that I hope uh, that, that we continue to do uh, here at, at The Independent. Elizabeth, uh, always a pleasure. Thanks for coming on. Yep. That's all the time we have, uh, unfortunately, for this edition of the ND Matters podcast. We want to know what you think. If you have ideas, criticism, and yes, that genuine praise, email us at ideas at thenvindy.com. Check out the site if you haven't already. That's the nevadaindependent.com. Rate us on iTunes. Subscribe to us. Tell all your friends and relatives and even your enemies. Tell them uh, to, to listen. You can also find us on Google Play and all kinds of other places. I want to thank Billy Vasiliadis again for being here and telling me how wrong I am. I always enjoy that. I also want to thank, as always, our wonderful hosts here at KUNV on the campus of UNLV. And as always, many thanks to Joey Lovato, our fantastic producer up in Reno, who makes us all sound podcasts. Oh, I don't know anybody who does that better than Elizabeth. Someday, that's my goal, is to sound actually podcast smooth. I'm John Ralston. Thanks for listening to Indie Matters, and we'll talk to you next week.